This is Joe Basso with Music Radar, the place for music makers, and it's my distinct pleasure to be speaking with Mick Fleetwood, one-time blues breaker, Fleetwood Mac founder and lifelong member, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. Is there anything I'm leaving out, Mick? Uh, <laughs> that, so- that sounds uh, very gracious of you. Uh, no, I'm, I'm flattered. And you've also sold, I think, what? I, I, you've also sold, what, like two billion copies of Rumors at last count, something like that? Yeah, we. it's sort of, it's definitely sort of our uh, dark side of the moon. Let me start, actually, let me go back, since I mentioned the Blues Breakers, to your early drum influences, you know, because at the time in London, you know, I always remember hearing about bands wanting to sound like Elmore James, but I never really heard about your influences as a drummer. Well, I I started playing drums when I was definitely a kid. Started getting, you know, serious about, you know, being able to even afford to buy a record to listen to when I was about 12, 13. My, my parents would, but before that, was really just all about playing to anything that was on the radio, mm-hmm. you know. And I was at boarding school uh, in the early days when I started mucking around with, with really with toy toy drums and I was in the, the Sea Scouts and I played a snare drum and uh, it wasn't even a real real one, it was just like a joke one. But So I uh, inadvertently started listening to a radio station on uh, a little, um, what we used to call in England, a little crystal radio, which was actually a real crystal radio that uh, to this day you can, when you do science projects, you build crystal radios and things. I think kids still do it. And lo and behold, if you were lucky, you'd get uh, Radio Luxembourg, sure. which was a European station that was a commercial station when uh, compared to the English uh, BBC, which was just, that's all you got in England was, was the BBC. So we were uh, inadvertently listening to the hits that used to come over from, uh, certainly some of the stuff played was American uh, records got played, uh, early Buddy Holly stuff and Everly Brothers. And I remember playing to Wake Up Little Susie and, and stuff like that and getting turned on by uh, the Everly Brothers, early Roy Orbison and stuff like that. And, of course, Elvis, you know. Right. Uh, and that was sort of my beginning without really realizing that it was rock and roll. I was just a, a young kid at school hiding in cupboards and things, listening to the radio <laughs> that we weren't supposed to listen to. That was the beginning. My journey really started uh, in earnest when I when I went to London when I was about 16. I left school uh, when I was 15, uh, which you're allowed to do in England. Had a lot of support from my father. I was academically not at all good at school. <laughs> Turned out I was fairly dyslexic, I think. And I had this passion about playing drums. So I, I used to sit at home and buy uh, records or borrow records and practice playing drums on the radiogram you know, just on my own. Sure. And copying stuff that I'd heard. And I, someone gave me a Bo Diddley uh, record, and I truly can't remember the, the drummer on that, uh, on the Bo Diddley, early Bo Diddley stuff, but that was a big influence on me. And the first real drummer back in the day when people like Dwayne Eddy, who was an instrumentalist, a guitar player, who's uh, still alive, I believe, there was a, a drummer called Sandy Nelson, and he made hits, uh, instrumental hits, playing drums, which was never been done before or since, I don't think. And he became um, 
someone who I really enjoyed, uh, you know, trying to copy, and he did a, a very simple sort of form of his version of being like a drummer called Louis Belson, lots of tom-tom stuff and jungle beats, and but uh, in very simple fashion, and that really appealed to me, and I, I never really... I never really developed past that, I don't think. Well, it's funny you mention that, particularly the Bo Diddley beat, because in songs like Albatross and even in later Fleetwood Mac songs, you know, you definitely worked the floor tom and, you know, the rack toms much more that, that's than, true. than uh, most drummers. Um, and I tried it in my own way, you know, that drums are my, my instrument, and I have quietly gathered over the years, which I take as a compliment, and it's really uh, my version of trying to be as musical as possible without showing off. The way I tune my toms, it seems to work out well that I, I can put some interesting fills around the all-important vocal line, you know, between me and John McVie as a rhythm section. It's all about complementing the song and thus the singer. And I think we learned that for sure playing blues, you know, which is a very basically a very simple musical formula but also the, the reality is if you do if you don't do it well it can be you know bloody awful it's all about dynamics and it's all about you learning to be sensitive to your lead guitar your lead singer and for sure me and john carry that through to this day and that's why my love of blues is is alive and well and you know, if you listen to Don't Stop, it's a it's a blues shuffle. You sure, know? So yeah. That whole early schooling and playing with the likes of John Lee Hooker and Sonny Boy Williamson and Otis Spann. There's, a, there's an interesting album for people out there that people, if you really want to sort of get into, oh my God, I didn't know Fleetwood Mac ever did that. There's an album called Blues Jam at Chess, which was made at Chess Records uh, and... Buddy Guy and uh, Elmore James' sax players on it, uh, J.T. Brown, Willie Dixon, as a whole, S.P. Leary, the drummer, did some work on there with me. It's just a really interesting uh, journey to take, because to a large extent, uh, you know, obviously a more contemporary audience that loves uh, the Fleetwood Mac that's going out on the road now, needless to say, it's as interesting as picking up a, a Buckingham Knicks album and going, oh, that's where Stevie and Lindsay came from. And you can hear their influences and their harmony uh, work that they did together. And in truth, it was that was the stuff that I heard. And the magic of that became the magic of putting really three fundamentally blues players together, Christine, John, and myself, with two people who really understood harmony and were influenced, you know, no doubt, from a more country-based sort of Everly Brothers approach to music. And that combo became the band that people fell in love with, you know. The chemistry between you and John McVie, which to me is one of the most mysterious, magical combinations in, in all of pop music. How do you guys work? Do you know how you work together? Do you have a pattern when you guys sit down to work out a tune? Does he look at your bass pedal foot? Do you look at what he's doing? Or do you guys just know how to right. lock into it? The, really what has happened, I think, with John, who is a far more disciplined musician than, than I ever was and ever will be. So it's a combination of, of John coming to the party for me. 
he cro- he crosses the bridge mm-hmm. to come over to where I am, which is, and I'm sure you're aware that nothing really gets repeated very much. Right. Which is <laughs> due due to my my uh, the same approach that I took with my schooling is that you know I just. <laughs> I just play and do things from the heart, and I don't really know what I'm doing, to tell you the <laughs> truth. But having said that, you know, over the years, of course, you, you know your sensibilities and ha- the passion is becomes more and more and more intact. So I'm not trying to be too whimsical about it, but truly, John is just the master of m- finding the right place to be at the right time uh, and has developed into a style between him and me where we don't necessarily play bass and bass drum together. Right. What what happens quite often, I mean, a lot of that happens, but there's also, I'll know when John's doing a, a bass run, I will inherently, without, you know, counting numbers and counting bars or anything, because I can't do that, but I hear what I hear, and in truth, in the same way as where I'll drop a fill that is... I'm often told it's like God. It's just a, it's a cool place to put a fill, but I would have never have thought of putting it there. Right, right. Uh, which is sort of describing what happens between me and John. John basically makes whatever I do look incredibly correct, <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm throwing him a bone at this point because I'm leading that, and he's following where I'm going. And in truth, he's we've now developed a, a sense a hidden sense where we just n- happen to know where we're both going to go without it being planned. And that, I think, is the somewhat unique thing that you're maybe speaking to. And it also just keeps keeps the... Uh, I mean, Lindsay will be in the studio and go, oh, my God, that's a great take. Now, if we can do exactly the same, I go, I'm going like, I don't think it's ever going to happen again like that, <laughs> Lindsay. It, there's some basic stuff, of course, where we have happened into a habit of, of doing things that, that are locked down. But I doubt I've played Dreams the same. It sort of feels the same, but I doubt I've played it the same ever. What about a song like, and it's one of my favorites, and, and hopefully you're doing it on, on this new tour, I'm So Afraid. I spoke to Lindsay last year, and surprisingly, because he does you know the, the extended guitar solo, he told me that he never really feels that he improvises on the solo, that he, he really feels that he needs a, a total structure. How about your, yeah. yourself when you play that song? Do you feel the same way? Well, by, by the nature of, of I'm following Lindsay, so my, my, I automatically become more structured by the nature that Lindsay is not improvising. Okay. Being the follower that I am, I'll be doing the right thing just because I'm of of what Lindsay's setting up as a player. Right. And in truth, I've got so used to him doing like because that to him is a piece of music. Right. And it's really about building a very simple song, which it is, but building it in layers, which is so so a Lindsay thing. Right. Where dynamically that song ends up being completely monstrously powerful absolutely but he's built it over the course of you know six or seven minutes which is the way Lindsay approaches music he constructs things that have a total effect 
he's not that interested, which is very quite different from someone who's, I mean, I'm paying Lindsay a compliment in, in many ways because for Lindsay, it's all about the, the total big picture and, right. and how the piece of music comes off. And he doesn't get tempted and, and in truth, for the most part, does not improvise wildly. It's all about how can I make this song rhythmically get to where it needs to get to. His touch and his magic touch is, is very much featured for sure in, in the unique way and the finger style that he plays. He's playing counter melodies, right. bass lines, counter melodies, uh, and chords all at the same time. That to me is his way of, of improvising. To do that is a task that really is not totally, totally unique, uh, to to that, there aren't many people that can do that. Well, there aren't many people that can do what you're doing in that song either. I mean, what you're doing on the bass drum and then what you're doing on the toms—that is just the essence of the the head not following the feet, not following the hands. I mean, is that a hard <laughs> is that a hard song for you to play live? Not now. I mean, I used <laughs> to get lost on it years ago, sometimes. and I, you know, I go like, oh lord, I've I've, I've because if you, if you lose it in one place, I'm going like, you. And then we'd, you know, Lindsay would scramble and put me back in, in, <laughs> in shape. But that, mercifully, that, that doesn't happen. That's way back when we first started playing that song. I used to get, probably drank too much then too. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, the songs like uh, Go Your Own, Own Way and Where the Tom Toms Fall are all people in, in my trade going, oh, you know, what, what What the hell are you doing there? I can't figure it out. And I'm going like, hey, don't ask me. I'm just, I, I, that's how it came out. It's sort of like dyslexic drumming or something. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I've read where you've said that that's one of your favorite songs to play live. Yeah, it is, because it's, it's just, it's, it's got all the ingredients of all the Tom Tom stuff that I've always loved. Yeah. And, and it's also got whole sections, which is just flat out playing rock and roll drums you know and building something and and having uh breaking out of that structured tom-tom area into uh fills and 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 stuff that i can uh really have quite a lot of freedom on but freedom to me is not about showing off freedom is is usually uh for sure in my my way of looking at that is am i am i building dynamically uh the feel of the song that can just be as simple as in as using simple dynamics, uh, playing the same thing but with a, with a delicate or a hard touch. For sure, that's something again I learned playing blues. It's like the the, the James Brown ethic: hit me, bap, and the next minute, second, the band is like super quiet. And all of those sensibilities are effective. You know, they're effective, and people understand that. You are about to embark on uh, the Fleetwood Mac Greatest Hits Tour. I've read you say that you're going to do some older songs that you don't normally do. Now, I'm curious, if there, if it's a Greatest Hits Tour, what are the songs that you don't normally do going to be? We are playing, obviously, songs which we hope will connect. Uh, we are paying attention to doing <clears throat> a couple more of Christine's songs, who is not in the band. The, the, the fact that we aren't playing any new, brand new songs, we're able to pay proper homage to a couple more of, of, of Chris's very well-known songs. And, and as such, that's become our quiet challenge to 
uh, project those songs in, in a way that, that is comfortable uh, for Stevie and Lindsay. And we've made you know, those choices. We're having fun putting uh, an old song that Lindsay, <coughs> Lindsay inherited uh, when he joined Fleetwood Mac. We were still doing you know, Oh Well and oh, yeah, Make sure. Shake and Stop Messing Around and stuff that came from, in truth, from the blues era yeah, of Fleetwood yeah. Mac. So Oh Well is back in the set. Me and John are happy to, to see it there. And Lindsay's uh, loving playing it, so that's, that's going to be fun. And the rest uh, are definitely songs that we feel that are, you know, whatever that word is, the greatest hits, uh, <laughs> are songs, you know, like Sarah, like Dreams, like Rhiannon, and, and Go Your Own Way, and, and So Afraid. Those songs are definitely in this set. And then we have an acoustic section, which has uh, opened up uh, a really nice few songs in the middle of the set, where at the moment, we're doing Say You Love Me, uh, and I'm uh, getting off the drum kit and coming forward uh, with everyone in the band and playing a sort of acoustic-y, I'm playing a cocktail kit. Okay. Uh, at the front. Oh, cool. Uh, at the moment, that's the way that song's being projected, which is uh, makes it different. Then, odd couple of spotted, we're, going, we're doing uh, a song that, that actually, strictly speaking, is not a Fleetwood Mac song, but it's one of the band's favorite songs of Lindsay's, which is Go Insane. Oh, okay, great. Sure. And we are doing that song as a, as a full band, and Lindsay has always done that song as a solo piece. So it's, we're offering up, hopefully, things that have been, been heard before, but now being put, played differently. And we are doing a song which has never, never been uh, done to my memory on the stage, which is Storms. Oh, which is one of Stevie's most beautiful songs. Absolutely. Uh, it's very poignant, and it's it's sort of musical poetry in, in action, really. Uh, it's, so, it's so about Stevie's vibe. We're loving doing that song. We do it very simply, and it's all about crafting the vocals so that they build behind uh, Stevie's uh, lead voice. And then... Rhythmically, I'm, I'm just doing something again on on the traps kit at the front, on the cocktail kit. Just very simple, but it's all about the song. And it's all about Stevie's delivery of that song. So, you know, that's not what one would call something one of the huge hits, but it's certainly a song that I, we feel that people that really know Fleetwood Mac's music would go, oh my God, I'd love to hear that. Absolutely. You know? So uh, we're having fun basically trying to put the final touches to a live show that we feel has continuity and we're trying for sure to put as much care and attention as we would to putting the running order of an album together. And sometimes, right at the last minute, you find, like Silver Springs, for instance, uh, which we do in this show, was a, a song that was very much uh, supposed to be part of the Rumors album. Right. But, lo and behold, when we put the album together, much to Stevie's concern, because she was awfully upset when it didn't go on the album, didn't make it on the album, but the band decision was that it just didn't fit. So you get, you get sort of potential ugly ducklings <laughs> that you originally thought were the, 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 the gems of the, the show, you know? And the show dictates really 
how you make those decisions in the end. Like the Rumors album, you know, rejected Silver Springs, and it just became sort of the legendary song that never made it, you know. The very song that you think for sure is going to make it, when you put it in the context of a body of work, it just doesn't find a way of fitting, you know? Absolutely. And you make decisions like that, and that's sort of where we're at this week, and then we, we start full production rehearsals, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have all of those things put to bed. I must get to a, a few reader questions. Smoking Beagle asks, is it true your legendary snare sound is because of you putting your wallet down on your snare head? I, I did, and, that, and, and it mainly came from uh, a lot of engineers. That's, the, that's what they used to sort of do. I, I took it a lot of the early Fleetwood Mac recording sessions with certainly from Fleetwood Mac on Fleetwood Mac Fleetwood Mac on, onwards I actually there's a thing you can get I mean they have wonderful things now that, that basically do the same thing but I went to a trick shop and bought some whoops you know like fake sick mm -hmm. yeah and I cut it in half and it's this weird sort of rubbery stuff so I actually had a piece of that that every time you hit the snare it, it opened up like a like a keypex. Okay. You know? Yeah. And then came back down again. So I actually developed my own uh, sick remedy <laughs> to it, and and had whoops on my drums for many years, where I put a bit of gaffer's tape so that the, the whoops would bounce up. Right. And then go straight back down again and mute the drum out. So you had a, a moment of of ambience and then close the drum down which was, for me, was much more effective than having a wallet sitting there choking, <laughs> choking it off completely. A reader by the name of Big Dog wants to know if you have any contact with the original members of Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, I, I have happily with, with Jeremy Spencer, and he's alive and well and playing great slide guitar. I, he came to Hawaii about a year ago, and we all jammed and had a good time, and he's made some he's making albums again and playing music peter i uh, don't have a lot of contact with but he lives in england and he plays occasionally and he's you know i think it's for sure knowledge he has you know some issues with his health uh, uh -huh. and but he he enjoys fishing and goes and plays blues festivals and uh, does really uh, as much as he feels he he can and wants to do musically christine of course is like my sister no longer in fleetwood mac but a, a a major major part of my life and we keep in touch and uh email and phone and i saw her in england not long ago and i went uh, to do a tour with uh rick vito with my blues band sure and she came to see us all of that and Danny Kerwin, I have no contact with at all. Bob Welch uh, is living in Nashville and is alive and well. Obviously a, a major part of, of Fleetwood Mac's history. He made many albums with Fleetwood Mac before the Stevie and Lindsay uh, era. Last question. The Dude 5 asks, having written about your tempestuous relationship with Stevie Nicks, how how is your relationship now, and how do you manage to be in the same band with her? <laughs> uh, Stevie is truly one of one of my dearest dearest friends, and is is very much alive and well. And she is 
totally connected to my family and my my girls. She is definitely the the, the magic the magic auntie godmother figure, and she takes uh, a really fantastic interest in my children, my two uh, twin daughters, Ruby and Tessa. We we came out. There's no doubt. Uh, me and Stevie many years ago were were involved, and all I can say is that we have the greatest relationship and we are truly truly great great friends and it is all a very good and and uh, lovely situation mick thank you very much for spending all this time with me it's been a pleasure uh, absolutely i've enjoyed talking about all the uh, it's, it's sort of fun talking to, to a, a fellow percussionist too uh, i enjoyed the uh, the span of the interview it was great thank you Absolutely. This is Joe Basso for Music Radar, the place for music makers, and I've been speaking with Mick Fleetwood. Mick, again, thank you very much. Absolutely. God bless.